Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. I'm back in Huntsville, Alabama today, uh, working for the day and then flying to Fresno, California tonight for a session tomorrow. Then I head home on Wednesday and I'll be home from then for a whole 10 days, uh, which is pretty rare in the fall. Uh, with so much of the professional learning that's happening. Now, this past weekend, I had the pleasure of attending the Teach Better Conference. You know, you've heard me talk about that all summer and into the fall. That was in Akron, Ohio. In addition to presenting my session at the conference, I was on podcast row for two half days, and I managed to record several five to 10 minute mini talks with so many different conference participants, presenters, and members of the Teach Better team. Uh, So my plan is to release two to three bonus episodes specific to the Teach Better Conference. So stay tuned for that. Uh, You'll hear different interviews, some people who've been on the podcast before and other people uh, from whom you've never heard before. Uh, A couple of reminders as we get going today, of course, grading from the inside out, the two-day training. That'll be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, December 1st and 2nd. And we have that upcoming webinar with uh, Michigan Assessment Consortium, three-hour webinar or so. Um, but well, maybe two and a half hours it'll be Wednesday, November 2nd. It's from one o'clock to 3.30 Eastern time. Uh, And it is open to those outside of Michigan. So if you're interested, uh, there's links in the show notes for both Grading from the Inside Out and the the webinar with the Michigan Assessment Consortium. So just check those out uh, and you can link to those. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time and a big thank you to longtime listeners. I, of course, appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Joe Feldman. Joe is the author of the book Grading for Equity, and that is exactly what our topic is for our conversation. And in Assessment Corner, I'm going to go over some fundamentals of rubric development. It's been a while since I've talked specifically about developing rubrics, so I thought it would be a good chance to revisit some of those fundamentals and get that Assessment Corner fresher into the podcast feed. So that's today's plan. It's a bit of a long one today, so let's get to it. My conversation with Joe Feldman is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by complaining about complainers. (laughs) Now, let me start with a little backstory. I'm not a complainer. I was raised to look at situations in one of two ways. Can I do something about it? If the answer is yes, well, then stop complaining and do something about it. Now, if the answer is no, well, then stop complaining and just figure out how to work around it because it's out of your control. Now, I'm not going to pretend like I never complain because that would be a lie. You know, find a hair in my omelet. Yep, I'm going to complain. Something egregious or unwarranted happens during a travel experience. Then sure, the airline or the hotel is going to hear from me. So I can't say that I never complain, but I can make a clear distinction between complaining and being a complainer. One is what you do. The other is who you are. Now, it's probably true that I have a I don't know, slightly unreasonable response to complainers because it just irritates the hell out of me. It's as bad to me as the sound of a fork scraping across a plate. Now, if you've got a legitimate complaint, then by all means, express it. But some people turn complaining into a personality trait. Complaining is a habit, which makes them complainers. The line for me is revealed with what is often the person's clear and obvious intent. Are they complaining to seek a resolution? Or are they complaining to fuel their ego? I have a tough time figuring out the line between some legitimate complaining and performative complaining for attention. 
For me, that's sometimes difficult to draw the line when I hear it. Now, what does complaining have to do with the ego? Well, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. The ego, as I've come to understand it in some respects, is all about separation. But it's about separation in either direction. I'm different than you because I'm more awesome. I have it more, I have it better. I, I have more than you. I'm better than you. I, I have a bigger profile than you. So I'm different. Or I'm different than you because I have it so much worse. Everything is against me. You have it better than me. I suck. In either direction, it's still ego seeking separation, seeking that fuel to say that how you've got it worse or you've got it better. Now, I'm not egoless. No one is. So don't think I'm talking here like I'm above all of this because I'm not. No one is. We all have an ego and we all have to work to keep it in check. The ego fuel of complaining is when the person complaining is seeking attention so everyone rallies around and feeds them with an outpour of, oh my God, I can't believe you have to deal with that or whoa, that's such a crazy situation. Again, I think there's a distinction between direct complaining and indirect complaining especially in the event that there's a big issue. So if your mechanic is screwing you over and you know it, then absolutely complain to that mechanic that you don't accept what's happening. Look them in the eye, call them, or write an email, or do whatever it takes to express your dissatisfaction with the situation. I think we all get that. Airline lost your luggage? Absolutely complain. But when the complaint is indirect, then we start to see the ego emerge, right? So the airline loses your luggage, for example. And suddenly we see the Twitter post or the Facebook post, Dear at Airline, you'd think by now we'd have a system that would keep track of bags. It's 2022. If I was as incompetent as you are at work, I'd be fired. Hashtag be better. Now, many of you will likely recall my travel stories from the summer where my bags were delayed through Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. It happened twice within two months. Now, my intent was to tell those stories because they were by far the worst travel stories I'd ever had in 12 years of being a full-time author, speaker, and consultant. Now, of course, I was frustrated, but honestly, there was as much humor to those stories as there was frustration. It was a series of unfortunate events, and, you know, when you have a podcast, you got to talk about something. you got to put out some content. So I hope that what came across when I was telling those stories was that I found the stories equally as humorous as I did frustrating. Like I don't ask for any empathy. And complaining about travel, that might be one of the most obvious and obnoxious expressions of privilege there is. So honestly, I do it as little as possible. And I try to do even less of it publicly, especially on social media. No one cares. People out there don't care. No one's going to feel sorry for me. If I'm like, dear at airline, do you think maybe we could turn down the heat a little bit because it was a little warm on my flight to Honolulu? No one's going to care about that. So to publicly complain like that, it's nauseating. I find when shitty stuff happens to me, I have my little internal pity party for a finite period of time, and then I just get on with it and just deal with it and stop worrying about that which I cannot control. Like, you know, I got to work at it. Everybody has to work at it. I go through a lot of self-talk, and, and certainly at times I have to talk myself off the ledge, but I think I'm doing pretty well with that. I think I found the balance and, and, and made sure that it doesn't sort of consume me in that way because it absolutely grates on me when I see some of these performative public complaints. You know, dear at airline, hard to relax in the lounge when everyone seems to have access to the lounge. Maybe there should be a separate lounge for people who are actually frequent flyers rather than those who just built up their status with their credit cards. Hashtag, do you know who I am? 
just nauseating. That kind of post is entirely about ego. One, I'm such a big deal that when I tweet at the airlines publicly, they have to take note. Look at me, I'm a big deal. I'm different than you because they'll pay attention to me. And two, I fly a lot. Did you catch that flex? So I have lounge access because of my status. You know, I want you to know it. I don't eat at the food court like the rest of you peasants. Now, maybe that's a legit complaint. Maybe there is a problem or maybe there's something that needs to be dealt with. But here's an idea. How about you send a message to the airline? After almost every flight I take, I get a survey. So how about filling out that survey and telling them your thoughts? I mean, after all, you're such a big deal that they will, of course, prioritize your comments and move mountains for you, won't they? Yeah. The small stuff is even worse because shit happens to almost every one of us, right? But there's some people that feel the need to constantly complain about every little thing that doesn't go their way. And then they exaggerate the impact for attention. And that is also just, oh, just turns my stomach. You know, you see the Instagram reel or, or the TikTok and somebody's on there and they say, guess what, you guys? I was at 7-Eleven just trying to buy a pack of gum and this guy walks in and you know what he does? He has the nerve to cut the line. Can you believe that? I mean, who does that? Um, tons of people. Happens every day. People cut lines all the time. Happens to many of us. You think this is TikTok worthy to over-dramatize something that happens to everybody? You think we're all going to listen to that and go, oh, no way. Can you believe that story about the person who had someone cut in line in front of them? That is seriously messed up. No one is thinking that. Well, I suppose except other complainers who will probably try to one-up them. Other complainers will see it and they'll say, oh, you think that's bad? Wait until you hear my story. And that game of one-upsmanship starts to happen, right? We do this in education too. In some circumstances, it's so predictable you can set your watch to it, right? You got a teacher in a group of teachers expressing frustration with a challenging situation with a student. And you better believe there is someone in that group who's going to say, you think that student was challenging? Wait until I tell you what happened to me three years ago. That's nothing. You hear it? Separation. Ego. You have a principal talking about a challenging situation in the group of principals, challenging situation with a parent, and you can lay money on the fact that another principal in that group cannot wait to one-up that story. I had it worse. Separation. I'm different. It's ego. Look, sometimes you need to complain, okay, because something important needs to be reconciled. Uh, sometimes you need to complain to a small group of friends or colleagues because you just need to vent. And sometimes you need to publicly complain because that may be the only way to resolve the issue. I get that. Complaining is what you do in acute or finite situations. Being a complainer is who you are in, and certainly is a, a less desirable character trait. I, I honestly find complaining, like complainers, I should say, about as off-putting as anything there is. Now, I know... The irony of this open is not lost on me. Here I am, publicly and indirectly, complaining about complainers. Yes, I see it and I hear it. Okay, I get it. You don't, don't at me, right? But still, if your default disposition is to complain, to separate yourself, to seek attention for even the smallest of hiccups that happens to most people in society, then here's my little nudge to you to work at being a little bit more self-aware and keeping that in check. Complaining is sometimes necessary. Complainers 
are just whiny attention seekers with an inflated ego about how they're so different than the rest of us that they deserve special attention or special empathy. If complaining is your default disposition, then it's time for a self-reflective reset. Joining me this week is Joe Feldman. Joe has worked as a teacher, a principal, and a district administrator. He is the founder and CEO of Crescendo Education, which is a group since 2013, has presented and supported K-12 schools, districts, and colleges and universities nationwide in supporting the movement toward more equitable grading and assessment practices. He also leads the Equitable Grading Project. He has presented at numerous conferences throughout the country and has had writings published in Education Week, Kappen, Education Leadership, District Administrator, and Black Press USA. He is the author of 2018's Grading for Equity, What It Is, Why It Matters, and How It Can Transform Schools and Classrooms. That's published by Corwin. And that, of course, is going to be the subject of our conversation today. So, Joe, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. I'm just so excited to be here talking with you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. It's great to finally meet you. Uh, we, of course, obviously, we talk about the same thing, and we spend a lot of time talking about assessment and grading. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of overlap uh, with our work. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation, a great chance for us to connect and, and see where the alignment is and, and how we, how our thinking is in terms of grading and assessment. But before we dive into the conversation uh, about grading for equity, can you give us a brief rundown of the resume, uh, your career so far? And, and maybe as you're doing that, help us understand for you how, how grading became a topic that you immersed yourself into. So I uh, began my teaching career in Atlanta public schools. I was an English and American history teacher. Uh, and then I was uh, an assistant principal in New York City. And I was a principal of a couple different schools, one in Washington, D.C., and one in Northern California. I also worked in the central office in New York City for a, for a while and also was the director of K-12 instruction in Union City, California, which is kind of in the near Hayward area, in the Bay Area. And as I left that work, I wanted to think about what would be my next step. And there were, there were issues that had always nagged at me um, as a practitioner, as a site administrator, as a district administrator. And one of those was grading. I felt like I never really quite felt comfortable with grading. I didn't know how to do it. I had tried lots of things. It just, and then as an administrator, seeing how different teachers were approaching it, the fact that there were differences in how teachers were approaching it and seeing all this variability and not even being able to be very fluent or comfortable actually talking with teachers as an administrator about their grading. It would always sort of devolve into um, really a lot of defensiveness and awkwardness and no one wanted to step on anybody's toes and wanted to respect each other's um, professional judgment. And so I just started researching and talking with a lot of other um, practitioners, teachers and administrators, and found that you know, it's been nagging at a lot of us um, individually and even as a profession for decades and decades. Um, and as I continued researching and talking with more people and looking at related fields of assessment and culturally responsive and sustaining pedagogy, I'm finding that embedded in the history of how these, um, our current grading practices have become what they are, um, there's a lot of embedded, um, embedded inequities in the structures of our grading. And we 
are mostly replicating how we've been grading for the last hundred years with no uh, opportunity to access the history and to better understand how many of our traditional grading practices actually undermine a lot of our work that we're trying to do, particularly when serving historically underserved kids. And uh, so I just felt like, well, let me start seeing if we can change things and partnered with one school in uh, East LA. And I wasn't even sure it would all work um, as we started trying to, as I did workshops with them and, and you know, collaborative discussions with the teachers. And so began a very early doing um, some assessment and evaluation and hiring outside folks to, to interview teachers as they were going through this process and then looking at student data at the end of every year and finding that, in fact, when teachers start changing their grading practices to be more equitable, you have a reduction in grade inflation and you have a reduction in grade deflation. Um, and particularly, those affect different populations differently. So what happened was that you had a decrease in the achievement and opportunity disparities of students. Um, and that was a great thing. And I, I then thought to myself, well, just because there's less grade inflation and there's fewer Ds and Fs, that doesn't mean the grades are any more accurate. It just means that there's fewer As and fewer Ds and Fs for different groups. And so started to look at the relationship between the teacher assigned grade and the standardized test score when there was a, um, a you know, connected um, test for uh, externalized test, external tests for a course. And even though I'm not a huge lover of standardized exams by any stretch of the imagination, um, I'd rather that the teacher assigned grade be closer to it than farther away. And we found that by doing this work, the, the correlation gets stronger. So you had a less likelihood of the student who gets a low grade in a classroom, but does great on the test or the reverse. Um, and that armed with that um, knowledge and that confidence that this actually does work in classrooms um, began continuing to partner. And uh, the pandemic really, I think, um, showed this bright spotlight on how so many of our practices in grading are not only inapplicable, but harmful to lots of students. Um, and that has really created this tidal wave of interest that I think still continues, fortunately. Yeah, it, you, you said a couple of things there that really caught my attention. It is definitely the most emotionally charged topic in education that I've ever dealt with. It is people take their grading practices very personally. And I think part of that is because we have to make some decisions because most of us weren't trained in grading. And so we have to decide how we're, how we are graded or how we're going to grade. Sometimes we go into our autobiography and we think about how, what did my teachers do to me? And that's what we perpetuate a decade later. I think about my experience in the early 1980s in high school. And then I start teaching in 1991, 92. And I just did what my history teachers did to me. And that just propels practices a decade forward, almost thoughtlessly, for sure. Um, the correlation, for sure, the idea of it being closer. I don't think standardized test scores and classroom grades have ever showed a 1.0 correlation, but they shouldn't be that far apart, right? I think 0.5 correlation is what we've seen uh, as a moderate correlation. And I think that's what we have to target. They are two completely different experiences, but we certainly know that there has to be some consistency. And as long as our grades are about learning and about the degree to which a student has met the learning goal, then I think we can find that correlation, as you say, that is closer rather than further apart. Now, I think the um, the big rocks of, of grading reform are fairly well known and established. Like, I don't think there's necessarily brand new ideas out there. Uh, I mean, I'm sure we can both attest to the fact that there are a significant number of educators either willfully or inadvertently 
ignoring the groundswell of work that's been happening over the last 20 or more years around grading. But I, but I think the big rocks, you know, penalties, zeros, percentage-based grades, homeworks, all of that are fairly well-established in terms of awareness. Um, and we kind of all agree on those big rocks. But but I want to ask you more about the nuances because like, like the minutia, the the nuances that you feel sometimes get overlooked that actually could make a big difference for schools and helping educators understand why grading reform is necessary. What are some of those nuances that you think sometimes get overlooked that could really help schools in their grading reform efforts? I think um, one of the overlooked areas, and I think even this is for the field of grading um, and assessment, is the um, elements of equity that are so pronounced in the implementation of grading and assessment. So I, I think a lot of the ways that we've talked about um, those fields of grading and assessment have been very race and contextually neutral. And what I think that has done is it, it, it um, positions the improvement of grading and assessment entirely in a sort of pedagogically valuable argument Right? You want to make your classrooms better. You want to teach better. Um, the way you do that is improving lots of things, including grading. And what I think has been um, overlooked is how so many of our traditional grading practices perpetuate inequities. And with all of the passion and dedication that so many teachers have to um, addressing historical inequities and to try and um, narrow the achievement opportunity disparities, recognizing how traditional grading practices actually perpetuate those um, actually can uh, motivate and inspire and compel um, folks to, to persevere in this work when it gets hard. Um, we don't realize many times that the context in which our traditional grading practices and our current grading practices um, were um, birthed were actually embedded within a number of assumptions about who can be successful and what is the capacity of different groups based on their race or an ethnicity or income or gender. Um, and even the way we thought about what was the right way to teach people to be, like what are the kinds of behaviors that we find valuable in our children and how do we want to acculturate them into the kind of society we want to create. Though a lot of those ideas have been completely overturned as we've moved a century later into a very much a post-industrial modern age. And yet we continue to use the practices and therefore continue to inculcate kids in a way of being and a way of learning that is um, antiquated and, and really um, contradicts what the research says. And in doing so, um, disproportionately punishes um, and holds back the, the student populations that we've never served very well in our schools, specifically Black children, Indigenous students, um, Latinx, um, students of low income who have special needs um, and whose first language is in English. And I think when people see the connection between improved, more equitable grading and addressing those disparities, it can totally change the game. Now that's actually, that's a really huge rock. I mean, that's like the surface yeah. of the planet. Um, I think one of the smaller elements I think is um, people's vocabulary that they use and the choice of words they use to talk about grading. So I'll give you two examples. The first is the, the nomenclature of points that people use, right? So everything starting with probably around third grade, fourth grade, 
um, is in the language of points, right? You turn in this paper, you get three points, you turn it in late, you lose a point. Um, it blossoms in middle school, right? You, the first group in after recess gets points. The quietest group gets points. If you talk, you lose a point. Um, and then every quiz, every test, every homework, every classwork, every syllabus signed, every assignment, every discussion, everything is in points. And what that does is it teaches students that the only goal is to accumulate the maximum number of points, that learning is actually less relevant and important and it doesn't really matter. What matters is amassing points. And when everything is in the language of points, you start to make points a fungible um, asset, a fungible sort of goal for kids. I just got to get points whatever way I can. It really doesn't matter. And to the teacher, they can create any number of points for any number of activity. So I'll give you 100 points, 50 points. This is 40 points. It's just totally um, random in many cases. And it pulls students farther and farther away from understanding learning and reflecting on their own learning. They're just in a quest for points. The second is how we talk about grades. And it's very interesting that there's, um, and I'm not smart enough and haven't done the research enough to really get deep into this, but I'll notice different verb choices for grading, right? They'll say things like, well, what do the students deserve? Or the students need to earn it. Or I give a grade. Um, and all of those signal a kind of relationship that teachers have with students in the classroom um, and a dynamic that um, sometimes suggests uh, a real power disparity between kids, between students and uh, the teachers, and is another way that it disconnects students from really understanding themselves as learners, right? If I say they earn a grade, now I'm setting up this very capitalist model where I'm in charge, the student has to do what I say, and if they do what they say, I'm the only one who can know whether or not they do what, what they're supposed to do, and I give them things for it. It's like a paycheck, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think um, that falls into a lot of ways of perpetuating a very different kind of power dynamic than we want in our classroom. Same with deserve, right? So it's the teacher's largesse that determines whether or not a student should have a grade. And I think a much more productive way to think about this is the grade being just a dipstick, a mirror. Um, just where is the student in their learning right now? And the grade is just a description of that. It's not a judgment by the teacher about how good they are as a person. It's not like the student had to work really hard. And if I think they worked really hard, then they get a better grade than if a student didn't work hard. Um, and so I think that language choice becomes really important as you start to think about um, grading reform and improvement. Yeah, that's, you know, you, you hit on so many points that I think are so important and ones that I often iterate and reiterate in workshops. We've turned, we in some places have turned grades into a currency, that there's an exchange and this is compensation for for completing, for doing. And, and that has magnified over the years to a point where teachers will say things to me like, Tom, you don't understand. Our kids don't care about learning. They only care about grades. And my response to them, and listeners, forgive me, you've heard me say this before. My response to them is, who taught them that? Who taught them that there is a disparity between getting a higher grade and doing more learning? Because that's entirely a system that's invented by the adults because kids don't create the grading system. They, they just exist within the one that's been introduced to them. So that idea that this is compensation or a currency and that I as the teacher dole it out and I have that sort of power, 
and, and that sort of question, are grades a commodity that you acquire by harvesting points or are grades a reflection of the degree to which a student has met the learning goals? To me, that's a fundamental question that we have to address. I also really appreciated, you know, in your conversation, clearly we're going to dive into sort of implicit bias and equity from a racialized or otherized, you know, groups of students. But I think sometimes we, we may in 2022 forget that with equity, we're also talking about students with special needs. We're talking about students who are English language learners. Traditional grading penalizes students who don't learn fast enough or may have to overcome a learning disability. So there's kind of an X and Y and and Z access, or as we say in Canada, Z, um, access to the equity issues for sure that we have to consider how traditional grading magnifies some of the inequities that, that students have been dealing with for years. But I want to zoom in on implicit bias. And, and you know, I, I do understand and recognize the irony of two middle-aged white guys talking about uh, impl- implicit bias. Um, that's not lost on me. However, nonetheless, on page 44, uh, you write this, and I was really, this caught my attention, on page 44 of Grading for Equity. Uh, you say, but we can't just be aware of our biases. If we truly want our implicit biases from, if we truly want to stop our implicit biases from operating, we have to reconsider policies that invite them to operate, that allow a subjective exercise of unbridled discretion. So I want to ask you, when you think about implicit bias, we can't just be aware of them. We've got to address sort of the undercurrents of the policies that promote them. So what are some of those policies, Joe, that need to be reconsidered in certain school districts or schools or jurisdictions or states? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, interestingly, many teachers already get this idea that we have biases and we want to protect our students from our biases. And we're not sure when our biases are going to operate, but we want to protect them. So, for example, a lot of teachers will have students write their names on the backs of papers or they will make them type them or they will trade papers with a colleague and you'll grade the other teacher, right? It's because we may, when we see a student's name, start evaluating their work differently. Um, and so we want to prevent ourselves from doing that. So we do things to prevent those things from operating. And um, what this is about is being more aware of how implicit biases, often based on race or culture, um, we by um, allowing those to happen, we allow ourselves to um, affect the way that we grade. So um, let me take a step back. So in the I would say sort of the mid 2000s, um, school districts started and schools started changing their discipline policies, um, specifically in ways where they stopped um, making certain infractions, stopped certain infraction categories. So the category of defiance, for example, um, or refusing to follow directions, those had been part of schools for a long time and students would get, you know, detentions or suspensions for infractions like that. And the research started to become really, really clear. And actually the federal government of the, under the Obama administration started making this um, a real priority to raise awareness of this, that when we have um, punishment categories that allow for the, what you said, the subjective exercise of unguided discretion, what happens is you get disparities in punishment based on race and gender. So they found that for students having identical misbehaviors, the black students and black boys in particular would face greater punishments and be more likely to be punished than white kids for the identical infraction. Um, In fact, there was even some evidence that 
um, there was more misbehavior by the white children that was being allowed and fewer disciplinary problems by black children and Latinx that were getting greater punishment. So we became a lot more aware that we've got to actually stop ourselves from having categories that allow for that unguided discretion um, because those are the results when we allow it. And we haven't really applied those ideas to the way that we grade. And there's a couple of categories in which this happens, one of which is participation. So participation, I mean, I, you know, I'm sure we all have stories of how we've used participation or how we as students have been affected by participation points. But you know, it's everything from are you coming on time? Are you, you know, not wearing a hood? Um, you know, how are you sort of replying to me as a teacher? Have you got your hands on your desk? Like there's kind of those kinds of things. And there's, you know, are you raising your hand to talk when we have a discussion? You know, every uh, question gets points or every answer gets points or, um, you know, are you taking notes a particular way? Or, you know, just a, the whole gamut of um, essentially learning behaviors or behaviors we want students to show that indicate they are ready to learn or that they are learning. And a problem with that is that it allows for unguided discretion, right? It's a subjective exercise. When I look at a student and I say, based on what you're doing right now, I'm gonna give you points or take it away, having nothing to do with whether you learned, but are you acting in ways that I think suggest that you are learning or ready to learn? And many of those are either culturally specific, like what is kind of the, the, the white dominant culture, what, what ways and middle class or middle upper class and English specific and, you know, what way should you be in a classroom and I'm going to give you points or take it away. Or it's like I learn in a certain way. And I think everybody needs to learn that way. And if you don't take notes away, I want you to take them, you're not going to learn. And in both cases, it's a very narrow concept of what it means to just be and to be ready to learn and to learn. And the only way we know whether or not students have actually learned is by evaluating their learning, not by evaluating the behaviors that may suggest that they are learning or aren't. Because just because I'm looking at you and raising my hand and asking questions, that doesn't mean I'm learning. It just means that I'm behaving in ways that suggest that I might be learning. And there's a lot of research that talks about how it's a particular kind of behavior, which is more aggressive and outgoing and more sort of uh, responsive and matching a teacher's behavior. Um, that gets those higher grades. And we want to prevent ourselves from bringing those biases into the evaluation of our students' learning. Right. Yeah, is so much to unpack there for sure when I think about um, the way that traditional grading has always included behavioral components. And if it is true then, and this would be your contention, and I think a, a general contention that if it is true that teachers, if we're not mindful, we can allow our biases to disproportionately see um, inappropriate behaviors, for lack of a more sophisticated term, by Black, Brown, and Indigenous students. We tend to we would tend to dock them more on a traditional scale than we would um, even the equivalent or even worse in terms of white children, and therefore you exacerbate the disparity between. Uh, children who are racialized, otherized, as I said, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, and I think that by purely focusing on the quality of evidence that the student produces in a way that eliminates bias, it reminds me of David Quinn's article from 2021, who talked about 
The simple use of rubrics and clearly articulated criteria rather than using grade level scales. I, I think he wrote something to the effect of when grading using uh, clear rubrics and specific criteria, the disparity between white children and black and brown and indigenous children was almost nullified. That if instead of using on grade level type skills, you use clearly articulated, it's such a simple solution and yet one we have to work at and one we have to calibrate for. Um, but I think that's that's an important uh, aspect to think about. Um, there's just so many layers to that in terms of the equity issue that uh, you do such a great job in the book of, of outlining that. So uh, listeners, you'll, you, when you, when you, if you haven't already read Grading for Equity, you're going to pick up on uh, a good chunk of that chapter. I think it's chapter four where you go into, am I right about that? Chapter four where you talk mm, about- I don't know offhand. I, 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 I know, I know. I know. Don't you hate it when people do? I know people always tell me that too. They say, Tom, you wrote on page 88. I'm like, I don't remember what I wrote yesterday. So, but I think that's chapter four. Um, I want to switch gear. I mean, that's a, that's a topic we could probably spend two hours talking about, but I think that we have to recognize that if we want grades to be accurate, and you mentioned accuracy earlier in our conversation, if we want grades to be accurate, then we have to decide clearly that grades will only be a reflection of the quality of evidence that students produce against the grade level standards and against the criteria that we are assessing them on. And all other factors have to be eliminated from that for fear and worry that our implicit biases are going to influence the decisions we make. That's right. Now I want to, yeah, yeah, go ahead. The other thing I would say is it's even starts to um, occur in um, other areas where we wouldn't think they would. So for example, when we have late policies for homework, and we decide whether or not um, we say, uh, you know, a lot of teachers will say, look, if the student comes up and tells me that they had this horrible event happen last night, I'm not going to dock them late points. I'm not going to dock them late points just because they didn't turn in something on time if they tell me why, right? And, yeah. or if the reason is good enough, I don't want the lazy kid getting the, getting the points, but if the kid has a real good reason, then I'll do it. And that also invites biases in a couple different ways. The first is like, who am I as a teacher to judge whether or not the excuse or justification a child made is legitimate or not. I certainly don't want to have a dynamic where students have to essentially self-flagellate in order to, it's like, I was so bad, I'm so sorry, I'll do whatever it takes, I, you know, in order for me to give them my grace. And I also don't want a dynamic where students have to disclose private information and maybe really uh, embarrassing or personal or revealing information to the teacher in order to get some to be forgiven for handing in something in late. We don't wanna be in the position where you have to judge whether a lateness is legitimate or not. And by making assumptions like, well, that student handed in late because they're lazy is another manifestation of our biases toward different, or, and where those biases can sort of be invited into our grading. And I might even add a third one, put the student in a position where they have to lie. That's right where they just have to, they know they've got to tell you something. So they're going to make up a story. And, and, and then that you find out that they lied and that becomes a, a mark on the relationship and, and the dishonesty that emerges. You're, you know, the, the, the disclosure and, and all the things that, that really play into that um, are, are, are problematic. And I think that's why we have to, again, refocus and realize what, what we're after here and, and how we can create a more honest and authentic relationship with our students um, and not forcing them into situations where they have to disclose things that they're not comfortable because it really isn't, uh, you know, forcing them to do those things I think is, is unwise mm -hmm. uh, at best. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you now about some of the most effective ways that you have found or you've come across 
schools are undertaking the idea of grading reform. They're going down the pathway of grading for equity. We're creating criteria. We're eliminating those behavioral aspects that are, are detrimental or inf inflammatory to the grade. Like we also talk about grade inflation. So now we've, we as a school or a district have decided to uh, move in this direction. But of course, we have to communicate this with students, with parents, uh, families, stakeholders, guardians, et cetera, whomever is at home, um, and, the, and the larger community sometimes, the stakeholders, et cetera, if, especially in a high school setting where we're, you know, there's a concern about college, university, all of that. So I want to ask you, what are, what are some of the most successful ways or strategies that schools that you've seen for effectively communicating the, the, the important points and justification for why grading reform is necessary? Um, yeah, as we've looked at schools and districts that try and move their whole communities along with them, and I think that's a really critical point. I think a lot of um, schools and districts sometimes don't really honor the histories and opinions and experiences of and priorities. Um, oh, shoot, I can redo that. I think that's a great question because I think too many times districts and schools um, minimize or even ignore the feelings and experiences and opinions um, and priorities of parents and families in their own context and just feel like, well, we'll just make a new policy and we'll just let them know what it is and, and we'll move forward. And, and that doesn't work. Um, I think what we've seen is when a district and school actually engages the parents in really uh, an education um, strategy. So it's not just communication, it's an education strategy where we're gonna right. invite parents and families in to talk about the why. I think that both on the teacher end and the communication with um, caregivers and others, um, too many times we just reduce these ideas to technical solutions. You know, just wanna let you know, we're not going to have zeros anymore. Just letting you all know. Instead of saying, here's what's going on in some of the traditional practices that we've been using, and here's why it's been so detrimental to our students, and here's what we envision for what they can become, and, and therefore, we're going to be using this new policy. And let's, let's have a place where you can ask questions, and what will it mean? I think that's a much more proactive um, and productive strategy to use. I also think that you know, we've seen in um, districts with, um, especially ones with larger numbers of families whose students are of higher income or families are of higher income um, and have been more successful with the traditional schools, they get nervous because you're, you're, you're suggesting you're gonna change the rules of a game that they are very good at um, and their children are very good at. It, and there's a lot at stake. So, you know, whatever you want to try school, like that's just fine. But why are you trying it on my kid? Because, you know, <laughs> they're, they're doing just fine. No need to rock this boat. Yeah. Um, right. And one of the ways that I talk to um, particularly uh, school administrators and district administrators is to help the, the, those parents and, and families understand that they've been actually getting, a, you know, we mentioned a mirror, that a grade is a mirror or reflection. It's been blurry. Because what we've done is yeah. we've collapsed so much information, both the behavior and the academic and when it was due and all that kind of stuff. And they yeah. don't actually know where their child is. And what we're going to do now is make the grades more accurate. And we have no doubt that your child will do just as well when they get accurate feedback. And that's what we're about. And the last thing we want to do is set up your child so that they think they're doing well 
And then they go to the next grade level or they go to college and get crushed by the content, right? We have every interest in making the grade as accurate as possible. So it can be a true partnership that we have with families around what their child needs. I love that. I love the education of parents. I'm a big advocate of that. Uh, The idea of don't just make declarations because if you don't educate them, then the narratives can hijack the conversation. So you brought up zeros. You know, if we don't educate them on what we're doing, it's very easy for somebody to misunderstand and say, oh, they're eliminating zeros because they want to make school easier for kids. They want to coddle these kids. They're not going to be ready. You know, no one's being held accountable. Or we could educate parents and help them understand the elimination of zeros is about making sure that we don't distort achievement levels with outlier scores and extreme scores. So we have to we have to almost and not in a manipulative way, but we have to own the narrative and say this is the reason why the changes are necessary. So I love that notion of educating the parents and talking with them. And sometimes at the same time, schools also need to be a little less defensive because sometimes parents are, and families are just asking questions and we interpret that as we're being questioned. Mm-hmm. And instead, they just want to know what the rules to the game are. And not that it's a game, but you understand what I mean. They just want to know, how does this change? What does this mean for my kid? Uh, what does it mean for their prospects at college and all that? So I think, uh, Joe, that's wise advice to educate, talk with your families to explain some of those changes that are happening. So I want to go do something a little different here. I've never done this with anyone before when talking about grading, but uh I want to sort of create a uh, rapid fire round. I want you to imagine, I'm going to present to you some grading dilemmas or statements or things that I think most of us who do this work are kind of wrestling with. And rather than sort of give me the podcast answer, I want you to try to give me a 30 to 60 second response to the statement or the dilemma. So we got a bit of a rapid fire round. I got, I think I got about four of them lined up for you to uh, respond to. You get in the elevator, someone asks you this question or makes a statement, and you've got four floors to tell them. So the sort of elevated answer to each of these dilemmas. Okay, here's the first one, all right? Joe, traditional grading is how we're going to prepare these students for college and university. These grading practices you're advocating for are going to leave them unprepared for the next level, unprepared for the real world. Go. Well, I appreciate you asking that question. Um, What we've seen is there are a lot of colleges and universities who are also doing this work. So they're actually becoming more and more um, persuaded and and, um, interested in using more equitable grading practices too. The second thing is that um, the professional world is actually better mirrored by a lot of these practices. I think we have um, a very sort of Um, narrow way of thinking about what the professional world is like or the real world is like, and many of these actually match them. That's all the time I get. That's all I can give them, but oh my God, there's so much under it. That's all I get. Oh, of course. That's all you get. And the doors close. And the doors close and they're off to their room and (laughs) and they're not buying it and all the other things. No, that's that's great. You know, uh, my my friend and colleague, Natalie Vardabasso, often calls it the fairy tale, this mythology that we've created. Um, this fairy tale about the real world that doesn't actually exist. And and I love the way she puts that. So uh, that's a great way. Okay. So here we go. Next one, 30 to 60 seconds. You get in the elevator. Somebody looks at you and says, but Joe deadlines matter. We need to help our students learn about responsibility. These practices we're advocating for are going to reduce that and leave our kids irresponsible. Go. So we are both on the same page that students need to learn responsibility and deadlines. And I think that schools can help do, do that. The question is, is why would we include the grade as a way to reward or punish meeting deadlines or showing responsibility? There's all kinds of ways we can give feedback to students that can help them. There's all kinds of consequences that they have 
in the rest of their lives that affect them when they make a decision about deadlines or um, uh, being on time, um, we don't have to have the grade be part of that. We have many other options. Absolutely. With you on that one, too. Love that answer. Again, how much I know when I handed it to you, two different ideas, right? And I think we're on the same page with that. You can teach them responsibility without reducing their grades. I often use the example of respect. Kids who are disrespectful in school are often held accountable for that disrespectful behavior. Um, and yet we never touch their grades when we do that. So yeah. uh, love that. Love and we've that also, and All right. also, and because the door opened, just when somebody put their hand in the door, <laughs> you just put your hand in the door and it opened back up. I put um, my hand in the door. No, I pushed the button as it was just closing. And then it that's, opened right. Up again. that's right. There we go. I mean, there I think go. there's ways to yeah. actually have students build self-regulatory skills where they recognize, okay, I didn't hand in something on time. So why didn't I hand it in on time? And what were the consequences I experienced by not handing it on time? Well, I got to have more time, so I did a better job on it. And the teacher actually appreciated that I had extra time to learn because I wanted to keep learning. And why would the teacher prevent me from learning? And secondly, like, oh, wait a minute, though, I had other work to do. So I faced consequences that actually I'm feeling right now, and I can yeah. better regulate myself recognizing my own consequences. I don't need the grade to be part of that. Yeah, we're trying to, you know, the, traditionally, we're just trying to have the grade do everything. And and there are ways to deal with things outside the grade book. Okay, but it is a rapid fire okay, round, Okay, okay, the door closed. 30 to 60 seconds. Here we go. Joe, I'm with you. I want to grade on fewer, more clearly distinguishable levels. But our district's electronic grade book only accepts percentage-based grades and ratios. And it treats, it doesn't accept integers. It treats a three as a three out of four. Yes. Turns that into a 75%, which I know is wrong. How do I deal with that? Yeah, so to six seconds. Here we go. The good news is that your software actually can allow you to grade in ways that you want to grade. The question is, who has the toggle switch in your district? Mm -hmm. Every software company, grading software company, wants to have the largest market it can. So it can make its gradebook do anything you want it to do. I think you just need to keep going up the ladder and find out who can give you the um, license to be able to use your software the way you want it to use. Absolutely. I think people be surprised at how much leeway. Sometimes the programs are limited, but sometimes it's just how it's been set up. So we've got to dig into the program and figure that out. Okay, last one. Joe, I get the theoretical concept of reassessment, but practically speaking, I just can't see that there's enough time to do it. I'm already maxed out. I'm already busy. Where am I going to find the time to reassess my students on all of the assessments that I provide to them? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I have so little time to answer this. Um, the good news is that teachers across all disciplines at all grade levels are allowing reassessment. So it is possible. Part of it is thinking about what do you need students to redo in order to demonstrate that they've improved? Do they have to redo the whole thing? Do they have to only redo part of it? And can you embed the reassessment in your assessment arc? So if I do well on the test, I don't actually have to redo the quiz because the test shows the test becomes the quiz retake. Mm -hmm. See, I don't. It's yeah, this is it. hard because we're doing we're talking about all these as very technical things, and you and I both know. I know there's so much underneath, and so it's not just like, well, just do this, that'll solve it. But I, I yeah. get the exercise. Yeah. I get it. No, the exercise is just you know sometimes <laughs> sometimes we face those questions and it's hard. And it was a bit of an experiment. You're a good sport about it. Uh, it's it's really hard. Each one of those could be a half hour conversation, an hour conversation. So I appreciate that I am putting you in a bit of a here with a 30 to 60 second answer. But like I said, it's just a fun little exercise and you got, you got to get to the point because that door is going to open and they're going to leave the elevator. Okay. Last question when it comes to grading, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I think 
the big rocks we all kind of agree on, but I'm wondering if there are any sort of nuances that you might find yourself, not necessarily on an island, but, you know, there are many aspects of grading reform where we get to make choices. I always say to groups, the, the good news is you get to make choices about how your model unfolds. The bad news is you have to make choices about how your model unfolds. I'm wondering if there are certain aspects of generally with grading reform where you find yourself maybe in a minority position where the majority of people say this about grading, but you don't actually agree with that and and that you would find yourself, again, not necessarily isolated on an island, but you would definitely see that as a minority position of something you feel strongly about that maybe is a zag to everybody else's zig when it comes to grading reform. Thoughts on that? Is there any aspect of grading where you find yourself in a bit of a minority position? Um, I don't think that, I'll just go back to something I said earlier. I don't think enough people are talking about the the institutional biases and the implicit biases. I mean, I don't think we're talking enough about how even th like things like extra credit, like in, that is an inequity amplifier. It's not just warping the accuracy and saying, well, you know, for all the reasons that you, I'm sure you've talked about in other podcasts, but it is actually mm -hmm. like punishing students who have historically had less and i think it's an acknowledgement of the mm -hmm. um the ways in which we have harmed and traumatized um historically underserved students and how we have to recognize that and take steps in order to address that um and that students continue um to be in schools where they face trauma and harm and hostility um and school is just mm -hmm. one of the places where they face it they face it all a black child and Latinx child faces this in all kinds of places they go. And so yeah. how can we talk in our, and become more fluent and comfortable, frankly, with um, and inviting with um, perspectives in culturally sustaining pedagogy and, and with some of the titans in that work, um, you know, Zaretta Hammond and, um, yeah. uh, oh my gosh, there are just so many, um, Geneva Gay a long time ago um, or a while ago, like make her age more she should um <laughs> Bettina Love like Professor Bettina Love yeah. like all these folks who are talking about how do we show greater humanity and care for students um, particularly those who um have been so impacted by our country and its history and of which education system is a part um to make right. more humane classrooms and caring classrooms and grading in in more equitable ways actually is more humane for students and for the teacher, frankly. Um, and right. so I, I guess I just wish we were more comfortable with talking about it in those kinds of ways and not just as pedagogically important. I think that's such sound advice and, and such a great way to sort of finish up in the idea that in some respects it, I don't wanna say lets them off the hook, but as teachers, classroom teachers, we have also been conditioned to exist within the systems society has created and upheld and, and the school system being one of them. And if we can recognize how we ourselves have been conditioned into a way of thinking about grades and assessment, we can then start to address some of those things that we may not even be aware of. So that level of awareness on the at the systems level about the way that we, you know, systemic racism from a systems perspective allows us to maybe recognize how we've been conditioned in that and therefore being able to address those. I think that's really great advice and certainly something that we can all do a more effective job of, of doing. Okay, I've got three questions left as we finish up here today. And these are two questions I ask everyone on the, who comes on the podcast. And one question I've added from this point going forward. So listeners, you're going to hear a third question I'm going to ask 
participant who's on a guest and uh, get their perspective on something a little more light and fun. Uh, we'll start with the question. The first one I always ask everyone who comes on the podcast, Joe, and the question is simply this, educationally speaking, and it doesn't have to be about grading and assessment. It can be about anything, but educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Oh, well, oh my gosh, so many big things. But I think one thing is this, um, <laughs> yeah. I think a trend um, that's happening that I just, I'm, I'm concerned about is that um, we're losing, I think, the sense that um, education is a public good and that it is something that we want that, that is so crucial to um, creating a democracy and sort of thinking about education as, and particularly public education as that is the primary purpose. And that requires a broad, a deeply um, both critical and um, sort of thoughtful approach to understanding content. And I think what we're seeing is where um, different groups really politically motivated are trying to really narrow the exposure and curriculum that students have. And what that is doing is that is not sort of thinking about education as a public good for the whole of democracy, but rather as a way to perpetuate um, certain ideologies. Um, and I and I just I worry that um, even though education has always been politicized in one way or another, I feel like it's it's acting in sort of in ways that um, fragment a sense that there is this sort of common understanding that we want people to have about what our society is and only an educated populace is able to really make the best decisions for, for yeah. our country. So, and I think that relates to the public funding way we were sort of taking funds sure. away from public schools and what that means. And, oh my gosh, now I'm going on. I'm going to, now I'm going to stay up even later because now I'm talking about it. <laughs> I like to push it down. Tom. I like to push it down. They, they, <laughs> I know, you know, sometimes you're right. I mean, sometimes when you bring these things to the surface and you think about them, uh, you know, you get your head down, you work in day to day, and then you, you, uh, you start to think about these things. That is definitely enough to keep anyone uh, up at night. Second question uh, is about success. It could be personal success. It could be professional success. It could be both. Again, take this in any direction you want. But if a random person stopped you on the street and said, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? I don't know. I think there's something around impact that you're making the world better for yeah. your own children or others children um i think that there's a big part of it that's sad i think also just being happy and sort of satisfied with your own life and, and the things that you've done in it um mm -hmm. i would say those those are some elements of success for me yeah, definitely. Having, you know, so many people talk about the importance of having an impact, leaving the world a better place, um, the legacy of of what is it for our children and the collective hour, not just our own yeah. children, but but society, the children who become, you know, I know it's cliche, the children are the future, but but really what what is our legacy for them and how have we positively impacted the world for them on their behalves as they move into adulthood? Okay, last question. And listeners, this is a new one, as you know, because that's usually the one I end on. But um, as some of you know, um, I'm a, I would say I'm an amateur foodie. I love food. And Joe, you live in Oakland, California. So here's the final question for you today. I want to know in Oakland, where is the best hidden gem, hole in the wall, 
where's the best value? Where's the best place to eat in Oakland? So there are many, um, but I'll give you one, and it's Arizmendi Pizza. Arizmendi okay. Pizza. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's a it's a cooperative um, run business where the employees own the business, and every day they have a different pizza, and they only make one pizza, one kind of pizza every day, and every day it changes. And you go in and you ask for a pizza, and that's the one you get. They sell other things, they sell pastries, pastries and things like that, but it is the pizza that is. Just okay. out of this world. Say the name again. Arizmendi. A R I Z. Arizmendi. Yep. Yeah, and can you get it get it by the slice, or do you got to buy the whole? Pizza? You can get it by the slice. You can even get it half baked and bring it home and cook it for another ten minutes. Oh, love that! Love that. <laughs> so, listeners, if you're if you're in the East Bay, uh, or if you live in the East Bay, or you happen to be visiting the East Bay, Arizmendi Pizza, Arizmendi's Pizza in Oakland, uh, the best pizza. One pizza per day. So you got to time it right. But is there any warning about what the pizza is going to be? No, they don't. I don't think they have no, an advanced schedule. Tell I think anybody. you walk up there and like, what do they have today? And that's the one you get. It's always good. That's the one you get. It's always good. Well, there's there's probably very few pizzas that I've met that I haven't enjoyed. So uh, appreciate the tip, Joe. Uh, I'm gonna and, and I keep asking people from their hometowns because. As you and I both know, we travel around, we do a lot of work, so it's always great to get those tips. I never would have probably known about that place. So Arismendi's Pizza in Oakland, the place to get your pizza. L uh, listeners, you can definitely connect with Joe on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Joe C. Feldman. Uh, the Facebook group is called Grading for Equity, the Grading for Equity group. That'll be on Facebook. And of course, the website's Crescendo Group, crescendoedgroup.org and gradingforequity.org. And of course, I'll have links uh, in the show notes for, for all of those, uh, sites and, and social media handles and all of that. Joe, uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Great to meet you. Uh, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was great. Great, great questions. Great conversation. Thanks for inviting me, Tom. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I thought it might be time for a refresh on some rubric fundamentals because I haven't done this in quite a while. It's, it's been a while since I had a whole Assessment Corner about rubrics. During, of course, many of the segments, um, I've talked about different aspects of rubrics throughout the, the time, but I thought it might be nice to have kind of a rubric fundamental or a rubrics 101 in one place so you can go back and reference it if you need to and, and just kind of quickly find it. I actually might start doing this maybe once or twice a year um, just because then it somewhat keeps the rubric idea fresh in the podcast feed so you don't have to search too deep for it. I'm not saying I'll repeat the exact same thing, but but I'll, I'll probably come back to some of these fundamentals because I knew I know two things about rubrics. First of all, they are a critical component to developing our assessment literacy and reforming our assessment practices because nowadays our standards at most grade levels are too sophisticated to resort to counting just right and wrong. Now, maybe at the youngest grade levels, there are some binary standards, of course, and we've talked about that before. But beyond that, it's really about gradations of quality and levels of sophistication. But here's the other thing about rubrics. They're hard to create. No one likes creating rubrics. And if you say you do, I don't believe you, <laughs> okay? I always say that the easiest thing to do in this assessment work is to critique someone else's rubric. And the hardest thing to do is to make your own. So whenever any teachers or groups or anybody asks me to give them feedback on their rubrics, I'm always very gentle about that because it is just way too easy to critique someone else's rubric. Because listen, there is no perfect rubric. The, 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 there's, there's no such thing. So rubrics 
are both essential and they're challenging. Now I'm going to use an analytic rubric, right? That's the all the different aspects of quality down typically the left hand side, the levels of performance across the top and all the individual separate boxes. I'm going to use an analytic rubric as the basis for articulating these fundamentals. So I'm going to go through that. Then I'm going to have some brief comments at the end about holistic rubrics and single point rubrics, but I want to focus on the analytic rubric, okay? So here we go. One of the first fundamentals for me is making sure that our rubrics are task neutral. Okay, now this is a choice, but I do think there are some important ramifications of this of one choice over the other, if you will. If your rubric is task specific, then it will be more attentive to the acute task at hand. However, it means each time you change the task, even if you're assessing the same standard, you have to change the rubric and then you fall into what I call the death by rubric spiral. Now, task neutral, uh, there is a downside and the task neutrality means you're focused on the standard but not the task. So you're not as attentive to the task at hand, but the criteria is transferable. And transferable feedback is how our feedback impacts students' long-term learning. Feedback really should, as Dylan William and others say, improve the learner, not necessarily the assignment or the task, right? So we want our feedback to be transferable. I, I know when we say improve the learner, not the task, it kind of feels one and the same, but by focusing on the learner's long-term learning, we increase the likelihood that our feedback will produce the desired result, which means positively impacting student growth and success. If we constantly hit the reset button and have to change the criteria each time we change the task, then we're almost in this cycle of not being able to be focused on that long-term. We're, we're very short-term focused, but we're not getting that long-term impact. We want our rubrics to be task neutral, but learning rich, because if they're too vague, then they're not helpful either, right? So the sequence in developing a task neutral rubric would be this. Ask yourself the first question, what am I assessing? That's where you identify the standards. Once you know the standards, you ask yourself, what does that look like? In other words, what demonstration or performances would reveal that, that learning, right? And that's where you build your criteria. You build your criteria to the standards. And then once you have the criteria, then you ask the third question, which is, what am I going to have the students do? In other words, the task to demonstrate that level of performance so I can assess that standard, right? So that's how we develop it. So if I change the task, but I assess the same learning, I'd be able to use the same criteria. From a practical perspective, it's efficient for the teacher because you avoid that death by rubric spiral. It's also effective for the learners because it focuses on transferable feedback that prioritizes the long-term impact over the short-term gain, and it focuses the feedback on the standards. So if we need our feedback to be transferable, what tool would help ensure that my feedback is transferable? That would be a task-neutral rubric. So this is a big one for me, and, and you know we may not always find the purity in this, so I would say make your rubrics as task-neutral as possible. So there is minimal revision as you assess the same standards multiple times. If you have to make some slight adjustments, that's one thing. But again, every time you change the criteria, you have to reteach the criteria, and that could be a challenge for students. Okay, second, so task neutrality is the first one. Second one, gradations of quality. Now, as you read through the progression of each row of an analytic rubric, the cognitive rigor should not change. Okay, that's true of holistic rubrics too and all of that. But the co if the cognitive rigor changes, then you have a learning progression. You don't have a rubric, right? So it would be something like this. A learning progression masking as a rubric would be like at the first level, you say they're a beginner or they're getting help with the very fundamental pieces. 
Level two would be like they learn the foundational knowledge. Level three, they've hit the standard level. Level four, they go above and beyond. That's a learning progression since the fundamental output at each level is significantly different. Right? So level one, you know the definitions. Level two, you understand the procedures. Level three, you've met the standard. Four, you go above and beyond. Now, and you show more. So that's a learning progression. That's not a rubric. Each level of a rubric should remain at the same cognitive rigor, and that cognitive rigor is identified by your standards, right? Both the rigor and the depth of thinking. The rubric describes the degree to which you've met that level of rigor. And that's why I always say that when I look at levels on a rubric, I'll say they're all versions of meeting the standard. I'm meeting the standard at an exemplary level. That made my four. I'm meeting the standard at a proficient level, as a three. I'm meeting the standard at a developing level. That's a two. I'm meeting the standard at a novice level. That's a one. And then, of course, you'd have insufficient evidence. The key for me in that whole sequencing is to teach to the top tier. You teach to excellence. And then if the student's demonstration falls short, well, then they know why. I mean, learning progressions are excellent for creating an instructional sequence, right? But they're not the same as rubrics. So what I want you to look for in your rubrics is look for a shift in the cognitive complexity as you read through. If your rubric is actually a learning progression, then you're going to see the cognitive rigor changes. And that is the opposite of having all students reach high levels of academic performance. Partially meeting the standard without actually partially meeting the standard is the epitome of dumbing it down. So your expertise will help you identify why a demonstration has fallen short. So for example, I always use the recipes and you know that. If the standard was baking a cake, you don't have to ask me separately, did I use enough sugar? If I bake the cake, you'll taste it. You're an expert baker will be able to taste that I haven't used enough sugar. And an expert English language arts teacher or math teacher or science teacher will be able to recognize a misunderstanding of key definitions in the demonstration that is at the right cognitive rigor. So making sure that we're talking about gradations of quality. Another one for rubrics is make sure there are no 0.5s in your levels, right? And I get this a lot. Tom, why can't we use 0.5s? Well, you can label as many levels as you want. You've heard me say this before. We have an infinite number of numbers. We have a vast vocabulary. We even have 26 letters of the alphabet. But the labels are not the issue. The issue is can you describe the difference between the labels? So if you say, hey, Tom, I want to use a 3.5, I want to use a 2.5, a 1.5, a 0.5. Well, now you've got eight levels. And now you have to be able to articulate clearly what is the difference in quality between a 3.0 and a 3.5? And what is the difference in quality between a 3.5 and a 4.0? Adding the 0.5, as I said, means now there are eight levels to distinguish between, which from my experience is next to impossible without this becoming an exercise in adverbs, right? Our fourth level is exemplary, and then our fifth level is very exemplary, and our sixth level is super very excellent and, and exemplary or whatever. So it, it, the key is, remember, it's not just fewer levels. It's fewer, more clearly distinguishable levels. So we've got to make sure we do that. Another very important um, aspect of rubrics is to describe, don't prescribe. Okay, and again, these are things I've talked about on the podcast before, but I wanted to sort of consolidate them into one place. Remember this, rubrics are not answer keys and they are not checklists. They should describe quality, right? I have this aversion to bullet points and rubrics. I just, it's just my perspective. But when I start seeing bullet points, I start to, it gives me the illusion that they're trying to create a checklist and go through every possible iteration of what this might look like, right? 
And that's where sometimes the desire for the 0.5s comes out because people, let's, let's just for example say that there are four bullet points in each box across a row. And then people will say to me, well, well, Tom, what if they have two in one column and two in the other column? You know, where's that middle ground? Um, but that, that to me is a misuse of a rubric in, in treating it like a checklist. The descriptions inside the box are meant to guide and prompt you to think about the overall quality and for the students too. But it helps give a description of what you are examining. Right. So, for example, if you're looking at student voice throughout a piece, is their voice exemplary? Is it proficient? Is it developing or is it novice? If it's not clear to you, then reread the description and that will remind you of what that specifically means. So a lot of times we work with rubrics in, inside out. Right. So we we read the description and then we start to work outward. And what I try to do at times with rubrics is just try to work outside in. Just ask yourself, I'm looking at student voice inside the written piece. Is their voice exemplary, proficient, developing, novice? And if I'm not sure instinctively, then look at those descriptions that we crafted and sort of go inside that to make that difference there. Checklists can be complementary to rubrics. They're usually really great for compliance issues like self-assessment or, or before you hand something in, like is your name on it? Is, are the pages numbered? Is the, is the essay double-spaced? Is there end punctuation on every sentence? Do have you listed your materials in the science report? What, but what bullet points tend to become when they start entering rubrics is they tend to become these sort of um, checklists, right? And, and pretty soon it becomes this exhaustive list of every possible iteration. So rubrics, again, are not answer keys, they're not checklists. They are a way to fully articulate success criteria in a cohesive description of what it means to demonstrate that aspect of quality at that level. Now, I hear some people say to me, well, Tom, I don't, I don't really like to, you know, this is a new one for me over the last five to six years or so. I don't want to use rubrics because it stifles their creativity or I don't want to box them in. And I can tell you right now, nine out of 10 times, that's code for uh, creating rubrics is really hard. So I want to come up with a somewhat valid excuse as to why I don't have to make one. Like, or, or why I don't have to take the time to clearly articulate gradations of quality. I'd actually have more respect for people that just said, you know what, making a rubric is really hard and I don't know how to do it or, or I'm challenged by it or I need some help with it. But this whole, again, highbrow, performative, um, you know, I'm above it. Uh, oh, I don't want to stifle their creativity. Uh, it's come on. Like that's a cop out. So the key here, and I always emphasize the syllables awkwardly, is to make sure your rubric describes quality, doesn't prescribe output. So where the people get it right is if your rubric is prescribing the output, then you are going to limit what students are able to do. But that's our fault if our rubrics are built poorly. So our job is to build a rubric that describes quality and then, and then the student can think about how that quality can manifest and that's their creativity. Another aspect that I often say with rubrics is that more is more. I know sometimes we say less is more, but with rubrics, it's more is more. And here's what I mean by that. Again, we talked about describe versus prescribe. We want to make sure we describe quality. Now, with an analytic rubric, the more specificity in the categories, the more effective it will be. I'm talking about the categories or the aspects of quality down the left-hand side. Now, I see these rubrics from time to time that only have a few aspects of quality on the left-hand side. But that aspect is described in like four paragraphs or this really lengthy description. 
Now, as the descriptions become too lengthy, you're starting to include too much into that description and it starts to become challenging for you to make the specific distinction. So I would think about looking at that robust description and saying, could we split this into two or into three aspects of quality rather than having this one big description, which is likely to include a bunch of different things, which is leading people to say they got a little bit of this and a little bit of that leads them to say they want some 0.5. So I would try to break it apart and be as specific as you can with each row. Each row of your analytic rubric should have a singular focus. Break it apart, create two or three aspects of quality at once. Now, again, this is one of the few times where more will be more. Um, we don't make rubrics to make rubrics. We make rubrics to clearly articulate success criteria at a level of specificity. Too much within each aspect of quality is going to create more of an opaque criteria that isn't clear to the students or the teacher. Okay, now this is especially true with analytic rubrics because we want clarity and specificity and transparency to be prioritized. Another aspect of rubrics is to pair your rubrics with exemplars. Okay, rubrics will always be too cryptic on their own. Okay, so when you pair them with exemplars, you allow the students to see how those descriptions of quality can be manifested, right? So if you start to think of a rubric as more a teaching tool and less as an assessment or grading tool and think of it more as an instructional tool that you use for assessment, it's not an assessment tool that you can use for teaching. If you reverse it around, it's a teaching tool that you use for assessment, you're going to find their true value. The students should see the rubric and the criteria right up front. This is what quality looks like, or this is what we're building toward, or this is how we examine the quality of what we're doing. And if we want students to be invested in their learning, we have to teach them how to make indirect scoring inferences so they can examine their own demonstrations and in real time identify any discrepancies between what they're producing and the quality of excellence that we've identified. So that's another one, pair with exemplars, okay? And then, and then the, the last one I wanna say is to keep the not, N-O-T, out of your rubrics. Like I'm just not a fan of taking up any space on a rubric to articulate what the student has not done. Now, the way that, this, I mean, this is, this is an easy way to avoid rubrics that become too lengthy because having one of your five columns or four or whatever, your, how many levels you have, having one of your five columns describing in detail what the student has not done or that they are not yet there to me is a waste of space and a waste of time. Use your rubric to describe gradations of quality. And if the student is not yet there, then I don't know, highlight the line at the, the end you know, of the, of the one column, just highlight the line or, or maybe highlight the aspect of quality to say that's insufficient evidence or something like that, right? These are gradations of quality and clear success criteria. So it kind of feels weird to me that we would spend time putting the word not in front of everything that will be described in the subsequent columns as achieving it. So for me, the, the aspects around a rubric that I think are important, task neutral rubrics, gradations of quality, no point fives, describe, don't prescribe, more is more, pair with exemplars, and keep the not out of your rubrics. Now, a lot of people like to use single point rubrics and holistic rubrics, so let me make a couple of comments about those as well. If it were me, I'd have an analytic rubric first, uh, especially for my high priority standards, because a holistic rubric and a single point rubric are best, I think, when they are derivatives of the clearly and fully articulated success criteria. Uh, there's an upside to these rubrics and there is a potential downside. If we're just using single point rubrics because we only have to describe one level of quality and it's a bit of a shortcut for us, I think that's the wrong reason to use that tool. 
Now you can, of course, use an analytic rubric for grading. Um, you know, there's there's things you can do, um, but I want to talk about first holistic rubrics because I think holistic rubrics are more effective for grading because they reduce uh, the number of possible combinations and they increase reliability. There's so many more possible combinations when you think about all the individual boxes on an analytic rubric. So you increase reliability amongst teachers by decreasing the number of options. And yes, like I said, you can use an analytic rubric for grading, no doubt. You'd have to come up with some kind of logic rule. Um, you know, to be a four, you have to have mostly fours, some threes, no twos and ones or something like that. But my preference would be to take the analytic rubric and synthesize each column into a singular description to create a holistic rubric. And we're used to making holistic judgments all the time. It's a great restaurant. She's a great athlete. We make holistic judgments. We're not ignoring any of the criteria, but we're actually considering all of it in its totality, right? So when you read an essay, just read it and judge it. Judge its overall quality. Is that sophisticated writing? Is it proficient writing? Is it developing writing? Is it partway there? Or is it novice writing? Same with a math test. If you read a math test and you read all of the answers, if you're a math teacher, you read all of the answers, you see the egregious misunderstandings, the simple mistakes, the correct answers, and I held that test up to you as a math teacher and you weren't able to mark it up at all. And I just said to you, just overall, on this math test, does this student have a deep understanding of the learning, a competent understanding of the learning? Are they partway there? Or are they a beginner? That's what grading is. It's judging the overall quality. So holistic rubrics allow for more consistency and reliability uh, within the team, but also within yourself, right? Even if you're a singleton, now some people say, well, I'm the only teacher on campus that teaches this, so I don't have to worry about calibration. Yes, you do. You have to calibrate with yourself. You have to be consistent within yourselves from the first student to the 30th student, right? Again, creating fewer choices, you're going to allow yourself to be more consistent as you move through, for example, the stack of papers, right? Now, holistic rubrics are not detailed enough for teaching. So from a formative perspective, they lack the specificity. But from a summative perspective, they force that overall judgment, which in so many cases is necessary since you probably in many cases will have just a single entry into your gradebook. Even if you're assessing multiple standards and therefore doing multiple entries, you're still likely to have one overall level or entry per standard. So the holistic rubric or holistic rubrics uh, can still help you synthesize all of those criteria, all of that criteria. So I think I read this in uh, a book that Subrakart wrote as well, that holistic rubrics tend to make us more strength-based uh, instead of deficiency-focused like the analytic rubric. Okay, last part. I know we're going long on this one, but I want to get this all in one place so you have it as a resource that you can share with your colleagues or anything like that. Single-point rubric. Huge upside. It personalizes feedback right? But we cannot deny that single point rubrics are labor intensive, right? Because there's only one description. It goes down the center of the document. You've got on the one side aspects that are strong and the other side aspects that need strengthening. There's only one description. So if a student falls short, they can't necessarily see the pathway forward because you will have to describe it. And that's fair, but that's much more labor intensive than looking to the column in the analytic rubric. So there is an upside. I, I think the single point rubric is, a, is a, a good tool. I think it's very valuable when it comes to like peer assessment. I think it could, you know, personalizing feedback, self-assessment. But the challenge is for novice learners, they may not know what they don't know and they may not be able to describe it as clearly and accurately as other students, right? So we've got to make sure we understand that the tool. There is no perfect rubric. The people who are all in on single point rubrics and can't see or articulate any of the downside or limitation, I'm sorry, 
you just lack credibility because there is no rubric that is perfect. There are downsides and challenges to every tool that we use. No, no rubric is above reproach, okay? So we have to understand that. Um, rubrics, they are daunting at times. I understand that for sure. Are they necessary? Absolutely, right? It's a necessary part of what we do. So at least for our high priority standards, we got to think about having clearly articulated success criteria that allows the students to understand what success looks like. Honestly, there is no excuse for not making success criteria clear, specific, and transparent. Full stop. That's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. If you've got questions for Assessment Corner or you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And also a reminder to check the show notes for the links for those upcoming professional learning events I mentioned as we started the podcast today. Next week, my guest will be Don Harris. Don is the author of the book, Plan Like a Pirate. So we're going to talk about that book as well as we're going to talk about her passion for anti-racist education. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. But a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would greatly appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.